Well, we're in Malachi chapter 2. Let me read uh, the relevant section from Malachi 2 and verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenants. But did not he make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. So this evening I want to address this particular question from this section in Malachi. What is a marriage? What is, in particular, a Christian marriage? There are three things I want to bring out, all starting with letter P's. The problem here, the purpose of marriage and the picture that marriage should portray. Uh, the, the problem is a clear one. It was a problem then. It's also a problem uh, now. It's quite clear that uh, men are divorcing their wives. They're dealing with their wives treacherously. Divorces are ensuing. And then the men are remarrying, abandoning their wives and remarrying, perhaps a, a younger model from a foreign land. This is uh, widespread, it seems, in uh, Judah at the time. Unfaithfulness, treachery, divorce, and remarriage. And the root problem is that they've lost sight of reality, the love of God. Right at the very start of uh, Malachi chapter 1, we have these words from the Lord. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet it seems that they doubt that. Not seems, but they do doubt that. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? The problem that leads to all difficulties in the Christian life is this loss of our love for the Lord. That we lose sight of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we fall out of love with him who so loved us that he gave himself for us. 
The complaint from the Lord Jesus Christ to the church at Ephesus was that although they were very, very active, they had lost something very precious in the Lord's sight. You have lost your first love. The primacy of our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. If we lose that, everything seems to fall. Everything seems to to fail. Uh, Little things become big things. Treachery, disagreements, disunity. And here in particular, in Malachi's time, it was uh, treachery within the marriage. And the chief blame goes on to the husbands who are putting away their wives and uh, divorcing and remarrying. All blessing and all power flows from the Lord Jesus Christ himself and lose sight of him and lose our first love for him and uh, we are adrift. John 15 and verse 4. Abide in me, says the Lord Jesus, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. So here's the situation. Here's the problem. Marriage is failing. Men putting away their wives. Divorces and then remarriages to foreign wives. It's a terrible, terrible situation. Just a touch on the question, is a divorce ever allowed or valid? Well, yes, there are reasons given whereby a divorce can take place, an allowance can be made. It's there in the Old Testament, and Jesus Christ answers a question in the New Testament. And in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9, the Lord says there is an exception whereby a divorce could ensue. And it is if something unclean is found, and the Greek word is pornea, and uh, it's translated in many uh, versions of sexual immorality. If adultery has taken place, doesn't mean a divorce has to ensue, but a divorce would be uh, allowed. Are there other reasons? Now, I'm speaking... Certainly not uh, on behalf of the Heath Evangelical Church necessarily, but in my own thinking and studies, I've certainly come to some conclusions whereby uh, divorces would be considered and permitted. And I base it on uh, Scripture and um, the agreement that a man and a woman make together as they commit themselves before God. And here, in the reading that we've had, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 28, here's a husband's responsibility to his wife. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh. But here, husbands, be challenged on this. Think about this. But the husband should nourish and cherish his wife as the Lord does the church. There's an interesting passage 
in Exodus chapter 21, where maybe a girl has been, a woman's been sold into slavery. And uh, if then she is given to the son of uh, the man who owns her, Exodus chapter 21 and verse 9. And if he, that's the man who owns this uh, slave girl, if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes, that's the son now, another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. And if he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. Well, abandonment, uh, ill-treatment, and immorality. I believe there are allowances for divorce. A wife doesn't have to take that course, but there are allowances, a permittal, an allowance. But there's the problem that's taking place. Uh, men were divorcing their wives for any and every reason. She's burnt the dinner, the peas are the wrong texture, whatever it might be, any little reason. And the Lord regards it as treachery. There's something of the problem. Now, what I want to come on to, the, last two, the second two points, and particularly the purpose. What is a marriage for? I had the delight yesterday at St. Melon's Baptist Church, going back to my uh, older church there in St. Melon's and conducting a marriage service and uh, when I became a pastor I was given this um, little uh, booklet and manual the evangelical minister's manual and uh, going through the marriage service and uh, thinking again here so we go through the marriage service here at the very start of the marriage ceremony uh, there are these things written the purposes for which marriage was given are so again we are married, let's think about this. If we're about to get married, let's uh, think about these things. What is the purpose of a marriage? Let me read them, then we'll look at some of the scriptures that back these things up. Firstly, that a man and a woman might enjoy lifelong companionship, help and comfort from each other. Secondly, that children might be conceived, born and reared within the security, stability and sanctity of the marriage bond. And finally, it was given for the good of society, which can be strong and prosperous, only where marriage and family life are held in honour. The purposes of marriage, the reasons for a marriage. Back in Genesis chapter 2, we see some of those things being established right at the very beginning. Genesis chapter 2 and uh, verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. I will make a helper comparable to him. Uh, someone who's going to help the man. Why? Because the man needs help and the helper he's going to bring is one that is suitable compatible uh, the old authorized version a uh, help meet one who is 
suitable. And then as if to emphasize the need of a, a companion of the same likeness as himself, uh, he names all the animals. God brings all the animals to him and the birds of the air, and he names them each and every one. So Adam gave names to all cattle and the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But <clears throat> for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So God takes the initiative. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept. And as he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. God's initiative. The man and the woman. Uh, taken from his own flesh. And uh, the great uh, commentator Matthew Henry says, if man is dust refined, then the woman is dust doubly refined. It's wonderful the way, again, Matthew Henry looks at the relationship between the man and the woman, and uh, he makes this uh, comment, does Matthew Henry, that God took a bone from Adam's side, he didn't take a bone from Adam's head that she might uh, rule over him. God didn't take a bone from Adam's foot that he might trample on her, but a bone from his side to be his equal, under his arm for protection, close to his heart to be loved. And as he's fashioned then the woman, uh, he brings the woman to Adam. And Adam is... He's ecstatic, he's, he's delighted. There's a wonderful bit of Hebrew poetry here. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's interesting in the creation week, Six times God says, it is good, 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 it is good. And then he says, behold, it was very good. But there's one thing that wasn't good. And that was for the man to be alone. And uh, the reasons for marriage. Well, one here, straight away, companionship. A helper suitable to him. And Malachi brings that out in chapter 2 and verse 14. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. A companion for the man. Very interesting, this uh, statement of covenant as well. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. There's a, a commitment here. And at the marriage service I took yesterday, Again, the registrar was uh, in the corner. I was leading the service. The two uh, were before me, the man and the woman. And they made their vows. Now, many don't go into a place of worship today. Uh, the wedding I took before this one yesterday was uh, in the summer. It was in a, a hotel, I think it was Miskin, Miskin Manor. The registrar was there. They asked me to take the service. But many still do come to a local church, and they make their vows before God. There's an agreement, there's a commitment, there's companionship, the man and 
the woman. Now, if you're going to get married to anybody, you've got to get along. You've got to get along. And there's a period where you get to know uh, each other. You have interests in common. I hope you have interests in common. Some things you'll have uh, differences about, but there ought to be interests in common. And certainly you ought to enjoy each other's company. I heard um, a chap talking in St. Melons a, a few uh, months ago, and just saying this, young, young chap, uh, my wife is my best friend. Is that still the case, gentlemen? Is that still the case with us? Is, is your wife your best friend? Now, men need other friends. They, men need men, and that's one reason why we have the men's uh, breakfast, iron sharpening iron and, and fellowship and challenging each other. Uh, but certainly, here's the need for a man to have a, a good friend in the woman that he's going to marry, a helper suitable for him, that companionship. But then there's this commitment. There's a covenant. And if you come to a church and make your vows before God, then you ought to seek his strength to keep those vows. And listen to them. Let me just read uh, the vows that were promised yesterday. I call upon these persons here present to witness that I do take thee to be my lawful wedded wife, to be faithful to you from this day forward, whether that is easy or difficult, whether we are rich or poor, in health or illness, I will love and cherish you until death parts us as God has directed, I make you this solemn promise. That's what the man has said. And then uh, the woman says these words, I call upon these persons here present to witness that I do take thee to be my lawful wedded husband, to be faithful to you from this day forward, whether that is easy or difficult, whether we are rich or poor, in health or illness, I will love, cherish, and submit to you as my husband until death parts us. As God has directed, I make you this solemn promise. And these vows and this commitment made before God, uh, the I will and the I do. Here's a real commitment and vows that are being made. And if they're made in a church before God, they are doubly significant, and must be kept. To make a vow is a very serious matter. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 through to 7. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not to pay. Do not let your mouth cause you your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there is also vanity, but fear God. And on many occasions, the seriousness of a vow before God is repeated. 
And then there is the area of the one flesh union. We thought about a companionship and a commitment. There is a consummation. Uh, the two becoming one flesh. They're in Genesis chapter 2, repeated here in Malachi, and repeated again in the New Testament on a number of occasions. The two, a man and a woman, in a most remarkable way, under God's hand, uh, do become one. Now, this one flesh union certainly does include, right there and up front, a sexual union. And if there is a friendship within a marriage, uh, phileo, there's also a commitment, an agape, despite the ups and downs, rich and poorer, sickness and in health, there is also eros that should be there in any good marriage, that union, that the one flesh. But it's more than that. There is a, a joining of heart, mind and will together. As I marry couples who uh, are from non-Christian backgrounds, the, uh, the wife-to-be <clears throat> will often jib at the, um, the vow that I will love, cherish, and submit to you as my husband. The world knows nothing about this. Uh, this is something portrayed by the gospel. It's not surprising that the world jibs at it. What do they know of submission, they see the, uh, it should never happen in a Christian marriage, this caricature of a man who uh, browbeats his wife. What an ugly caricature for a man to say, well, wife, the Bible says you should submit, so you just do what I say that you should do. That is never the intention of Scripture. And the submission of a wife to a husband should be a delightful submission in the light of what the husband is commanded in the Scripture. Husbands, love your wives. Now, how does it work out, this submission and this love and this two becoming one? You see, from the world's point of view, here's a man, here's a woman, they both have their uh, agenda, they have their opinions, and often very strong uh, opinions, uh, political, social, sporting. I don't know how my mum and dad lasted so long. One a Manchester United supporter, the other a Liverpool supporter, and on the day of those matches, we just got out of the way. But how do two become one? Why, there's something of an order here. Not an inequality. It's born from the sides, under the arm, close to the heart. A wonderful equality, heirs together of the grace of God. <clears throat> but you know, there have been times, and we struggle to think of examples. I do say to young people who are going to be married, you know, there are times where maybe myself and my wife might disagree. We, we discuss things, generally, and we come to uh, a conclusion, and generally we both agree. So when a, when a vote comes, it's 2-0, that's, that's easy. 2-0, we're, we're going to go to... Uh, uh, Blackpool again for a little short no Jill doesn't like Blackpool but anyway <clears throat> on occasions what happens where the vote comes you've discussed it and it's 1-1 one, one. as far as the world's concerned it's loggerheads well who should who should get the the final say why not the woman why should it be uh, the man, well, God has ordained it this way and so in our relationship and any Christian relationship a husband and a wife this submission comes along. 
Well, we seem to disagree. I don't agree. I've made my view clear. But you are my husband. And on this occasion, I submit to your God-given authority. And so if you like, the, the husband has the casting vote. Uh, he's the chairman of the board. And so it's 2-1 and the logjam is broken and off we go. But having said that, and it can happen this way, as they go along the way the husband has chosen, the logjam has been broken. Through experience, the husband recognizes actually what my wife was suggesting was the right thing. And Jill says, well, I told you. Well, no. And, uh, but the husband should be humble enough to come back and admit that. Not to be a pig-headed man and say, well, we've decided we're going to go this way, come what may. No, you were wrong. And you come back and you admit that. You say, sorry, wife, you were, you were right. And we will go now the way you are suggesting. But the, the husband is taking the lead. And it's a loving leadership. And the highest command then comes for the husband to love his wife. Well, what's the example as Jesus Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, and any wife who was loved in such a way would not have any difficulty on following her husband's leadership. But this oneness together, we found over the years, I can finish Jill's sentences. She can finish my sentences we begin to take on a similar look. We're both going grey at the same time. Um, we're a team together. Now, how, how can this happen? Uh, how can any marriage survive? We've been, by the grace of God, 42 years. There's a few folks here can beat 42 years. There's some about to venture on a great adventure. In a sense, I envy you very much. What a, a joyous time ahead of you. But there are trials and tribulations as well. And uh, young people need to be prepared well for a marriage that's ahead. But how can a marriage survive? The facts and the statistics are pretty grim. In the UK, the divorce rate is about 42%. And the number one cause of a failure of a marriage is uh, immorality and adultery. Now, how can a marriage survive? It's uh, hinted at here in Malachi chapter 2, but it's clear then throughout the Bible. Malachi 2 and verse 15. But did he not make them one? The two became one, in, uh, alluding back to Genesis chapter 2. And then this interesting phrase. Did he not make them one? Having a remnant of the Spirit. And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Having a remnant of the Spirit, did he not make them one having a remnant of the Spirit? As I've read commentators, they do admit, here's a difficult thing uh, to, um, to, to open up. What does it mean, having a remnant of the Spirit? Here's the English Standard Version translation. Did he not make them one? with a portion of the Spirit in their union. Now, I think that makes it a little bit clearer. Here's a Christian young man, a Christian young lady, a Christian older man, a Christian older uh, lady. But they're both Christians. They're coming together before God and making their vows. And the two become one. 
There's something else absolutely vital, that the Spirit of God needs to be in that union. It's the threefold strand that is not easily uh, broken. We have our ups and downs in our marriages. Uh, in the mathematics of God, as a couple uh, marry, one plus one equals one. Now, any child will say, well, that's quite wrong. One plus one equals two. But not in the mathematics of God in marriage. One plus one equals one. But then very wonderfully, the Lord needs to be in the midst. The Spirit of God, having that portion of the Spirit where one plus one plus one equals one. God, the Holy Spirit. Let me say to you couples who are married here this evening, how's your marriage doing? It's a time to reflect and a time to think. Uh, is ours a godly marriage? Is this marriage thriving? Is my wife thriving under my male headship? Does she feel cherished and nourished? Does she feel appreciated? When, husbands, did you last buy your wife a bunch of flowers? When did you last get her a special uh, treat? It's these little things. Does she feel appreciated? Oh, to enrich that marriage. God the Holy Spirit, stay close to Him. He alone makes the difference. I have couples who come to me and they say, uh, it doesn't happen often, but it's an increasing trend. Uh, could we uh, come to your church and renew our vows? I don't quite know what to think about that. I, I have done one or two such services. They say, well, we've been married 25 years. And after 25 years, we'd like to renew our vows. Well, let me suggest something to you couples. How often should you renew your vows? I won't wait too long. It, uh, it's an obvious answer, really. It is every day. It's every day. Because I fail day by day. I need to be reminded day by day. How many weeks has it been now? Seven, Seven weeks. Still happy? Oh, good. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, every day, remember what you promised and ask God for his help. Let's just finish briefly with um, the picture of marriage. Every marriage... Now, think about this Christian couple who are married this evening. Your marriage should be a gospel illustration. You know, not many people go to church, not many people read the Bible, not many people understand or hear the gospel, but our marriages ought to be a gospel illustration. A husband and a wife, Christ and the church. Why, I read Ephesians chapter 5. This is a great mystery. I'm speaking of Christ and the church, but having said that, a husband should love his wife and a wife should submit to her husband. He is the, the gospel that the Lord Jesus Christ comes from the realms of glory. And to win a bride, he, he leaves heaven and he comes to this little planet and he goes through the trials of a, a, a sinless life, but the opposition of the world and, and the devil are, are against him. 
But he lives here for those 33 years to win you and I, to win our love and our hearts. And he goes all the way to Calvary. He loved us and he gave himself uh, for us. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And if your marriages are thriving in this day and generation, what an example, what an opportunity do you invite people into your homes? Do they ask the question, how, how are you surviving? And uh, how is it that you still, uh, he still buys you flowers? And uh, you still cook him a meal? And you haven't given it to the dog when he's late? And you still seem to care for him? Well, what is this? What a gospel illustration. What a gospel opportunity. The love of God for lost mankind. And a Christian marriage should be a powerful gospel tool it's a challenge to me and it's a challenge to you that people might see this agape working powerfully and peace being in a christian home and that outwardly we're looking to engage with a lost world how can we do this only by having that remnant of the spirit within us well I need to cover this area from, from Malachi, thinking about the problems there in Malachi's time. Sadly, many such problems today. Treacherous behavior generally, treacherous behavior within marriages. Our marriages are under attack. The devil would love to see your marriages fail. If you're struggling in this area, do come and have a chat with the, the elders. It's entirely confidential. A cup of coffee with with me. Uh, I've known struggles as well, and uh, we all go through difficult... We need each other. We need to support each other and point each other to the only source and only hope and the only help we have, and that's our wonderful, risen, reigning, almighty Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may our marriages increasingly be a picture of the gospel. Now, having spoken about marriage uh, tonight, I was going through the membership uh, booklets, and uh, I've worked out that around about 30% of our members are not married. So what has the Bible got to say about singleness? Well, quite a lot, actually. And so uh, next time I want to speak on, on that particular issue, it's like a little mini-series spinning off from these, uh, this chapter 2 of Malachi. And then I want to go on because uh, why does God want successful marriages and happy marriages? Uh, well, we're told here that the Lord seeks godly offspring. I was being asked today by a couple who recently got married, what advice could you give to us for, about raising children? So we had a discussion over the meal uh, in the back about raising children. The Bible's got much to say about that. So a little uh, sermon in that area as well. What has the Bible got to say about raising uh, children. But that will suffice for uh, this evening. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for an all too brief time in your word. We thank you that you speak to every area of our lives. And we do pray for our marriages in this day and generation when so many uh, seem to be under attack. Help us as husbands to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her.